The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. Well, experts tell us that significant life changes cause worry, anxiety, and stress. And significant life changes are things like a birth, a death, a marriage, <laughs> surprisingly, a divorce or separation, an injury or serious illness, long-term disability, financial reversal, loss of work, job change or transfer, car accident, children leaving home, and caregiving for a loved one who's had a significant change in their health condition. These are all things that would be called significant life changes. And if I were to, to ask you about that list right there, most of us have at least one of those significant life changes this week or in the last few weeks. And many of us, several of these, and even if you didn't have one of those that you could identify with, the residual stress from people and those that you love who are experiencing these significant life changes in the past few weeks in light of the coronavirus, it's produced a lot of stress for all of us. But rather than focusing on the problem this morning, we're going to do a backdoor solution to, to get at this problem this morning. Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. And it's always good for us to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto the needs of others, as Jesus talks about, that, or Paul does about Jesus, that we're to have the attitude or the mind of Christ Jesus, considering others better than ourselves or more significant than ourselves, looking not to our own interests, but to the interest of others. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're looking at Titus 2 and 3, actually, and we're going to look at this message as simply about being devoted to good works. And I want, as I read this text, starting at Titus 2, verse 11, notice four times good works are going to be mentioned. And so if you've got a pen or, you know, mark that or underline it each time you see good works. So here, God's Word, this is Titus 2, beginning at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds or good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified 
by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, having nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All those who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let me pray for us. Father, now as we consider this, this your word to us in this time and place in history, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open up our hearts, that you would make us compassionate and gracious like you, and big-hearted. Help us to be devoted to good works and pray that you would give the application, Holy Spirit, of where to apply these very truths. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, Crete was this large island in the eastern Mediterranean South of Greece is basically 160 miles long and about 7 to 35 miles wide. And this island of Crete uh, was largely a recruiting area for mercenary soldiers, particularly archers. And they had a really bad reputation. And that's where Paul said in, in uh, Titus 1.12, quoting somebody else that said, Cretans are all liars. Not a good reputation for, and, and not a good place to, a real fertile soil to like plant a church. You know, Cretans were so known for their lying that the term Cretism was formed, meaning Cretan behavior, which was another word for lying. So if someone said you speak like a Cretan, that would not have been a compliment. Cicero, writing about the Cretans, said that indeed men's moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery to be honorable. So it was pretty much accepted that Paul wrote this epistle around 63 to 65 AD after he had visited Crete while traveling to Rome under house arrest. And now he's leaving Titus there in Crete, we're told, to set in order what remains or what is lacking. The church in Crete was having trouble, difficulties. It was obvious from reading the text. The church lacked leadership and was being negatively influenced by rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers. And Paul's advice basically boils down to two things to Titus. Teach sound doctrine and devote yourself to good works and get the people to devote themselves to good works. So the doctrine is summed up basically in Titus 2, 11 to 14, and then again in, in 3, 4 to 7. Those are the doctrinal sections, that the grace of God has appeared, that that's Jesus. Jesus has appeared in the flesh, bringing salvation for all people. And he's training us or teaching us to say no, what we're to say no to. We're to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. That's the things that we're to, to say no to. And then we're to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's what we're to say yes to. 
Why? Because he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. That's what we've been saved from, is a lack of law-keeping. And then he purified for himself. He cleansed and washed a people for himself of his own possession. And this is what we've been saved to. We're now his own special people who are now zealots. We're zealous for good works. And so Paul is, is letting them know this is your personal posture towards sin and towards the Lord now. And then your outward look of devoting yourself to good works towards others. And so... Um, as we uh, think about this, um, I want to look at these four terms here of good works. And so here's the, the outline, okay? So it's where to be zealous for good works, ready for every good work, devoted to good works, and learn to be leaders in good works. So we're just following the text. It's 2.14 uh, is the first one, being zealous for good works. And so we see Jesus died to win a people for himself who are zealous for good works. They're not saved because of their works. They're saved despite their works. We're actually told in, in chapter 3 that he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so true faith always looks away from our works to the works of Christ, but true faith always leads to good works. Jesus died to make a people zealous for good works. And that's not everybody in the whole wide world. He died for a peculiar people to make them zealous for good works. And so to be zealous is interesting. This word means to be deeply committed to something or, or to be zealous, an enthusiast, burning with zeal. But it also means to be an emulator or a follower and so we are followers of Jesus. We are now zealots for Jesus. And so what did Jesus do for us? Well, first of all, consider when you think about, you know, we're to love God and love our neighbor. We weren't really Jesus's neighbor. I mean, he's in heaven. We're on earth. David Gooding put it like this. We were not his neighbors, nor here ours. But he chose by incarnation to come where we were. And in spite of the fact that human beings hounded him to a cross, he rescued us at his own expense, and he paid in advance the cost of completing our redemption and of perfecting us for unimaginable glory. And so Jesus comes modeling mercy, he comes preaching, but he comes healing and doing good works. And he tells us about the parable of the Good Samaritan, which we're all probably very familiar with about this man on his way to Jericho and he's robbed and he's left for dead on the side of the road. And the priest and the Levite walk by and they go the other direction. But the Samaritan, when he saw him, had compassion and he went to him, risking his own life of thieves that could attack him. But he came to him, he washed his wounds, he put him on his donkey and then he took him to an inn and he paid the bill for him to get well. Well, Charles Haddon Spurgeon was speaking about this very parable, and he, he talks about how Christ was really the good Samaritan. He says this, The Samaritan came to the wounded one because he was in the course of business. He was led there, and being there, he helped the man. But Jesus came to earth on no business but that of saving us. And he was found in our flesh that he might have sympathy with us. 
And being here, when he had fallen among robbers, he didn't merely run risks of being attacked by thieves themselves, but he was attacked by them. He was wounded, he was stripped, and not half dead was he. You see, the generosity of Jesus far surpasses that of the Samaritan, and we are to emulate and be zealous for good deeds following Jesus since the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to us. Some years ago, the American Red Cross uh, called the house, and they would call and leave messages, and one day they got me. I picked up the phone, and uh, the guy told me he was from the American Red Cross, and somehow he knew that I was a pastor. And so he, this guy was a genius. He said, so I, I, I see you're a pastor, so you know all about somebody giving their blood for somebody else. Like, okay, sign me up. Where, where do I go to give my blood? Well, right now there's pretty great needs for blood. And so you might not have money right now, but you have blood. And one of the practical ways to be zealous for good deeds is to give your blood. We're going to talk real practically of some practical applications as we go. But we're called in Scripture to bear one another's burdens. Uh, and that's the fleshing out in Galatians of serving one another. And we're not to let people carry their, their burdens alone. And we bear other, other people's burdens. Why? Because Christ bore ours. And he went to the cross. It takes humility to bear the burdens of others. And we need the attitude of Christ. And uh, Jonathan Edwards, who wrote some... I had a great sermon on uh, giving to the poor and, and being charitable. He, he raises some of the excuses that people gives, give. And one of them is, I only need to help people who are truly deserving of help, who through no fault of their own are in the predicament that they are in. Those are the only people that I want to help. And Edwards' reply was to apply that logic to the gospel and ask yourself, well, if Jesus was to apply that gospel and only die for the deserving poor, well, he could have saved himself a trip and he would have never come. But while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so that's not a valid uh, principle to only help the deserving poor. Another excuse that was raised was, I just want to help people if it doesn't cost me too much. Just a little bit of help. And Edward says, if we were never obliged to relieve others' burdens, but only when we can do it without burdening ourselves, then how do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burden at all? And what Edwards is saying is it's essential that some of the burden be on your shoulders to ease the weight of the boulder that is crushing somebody else. And to do that, we have to take on some of the weight ourselves. Martin Luther just put it like this. He said, Christians must have strong shoulders and mighty bones so they can carry their brother's weaknesses. So we have to be ready for good works, devoted to good works. And now let's look at this ready for good works. So he says in chapter uh, 3, verse 1, that we are to be ready for every good work. Well, think about that in our context. We don't know what all is going to happen. Uh, we, most experts are telling us with the coronavirus that, that the, the real storm hasn't quite hit yet. This is kind of the call to clear the beach, the tsunami's on its way, and things could get worse because we haven't reached the peak yet. So we're to be ready for every good work. 
the Boy Scout motto is be prepared. And the idea there of being prepared, uh, that, that motto came from Lieutenant General Baden-Powell, who was really big with the scouts. And the idea was this, to be prepared in mind by having disciplined yourself to be obedient to every order, and also by having thought out beforehand any accident or situation that might occur so that you might know the right thing to do at the right moment and are willing to do it. We're to be ready for every good work. Well, when I spent most of my middle school and high school years in Lisbon, Maryland, I was right near the volunteer fire department. And the way the volunteer fire department works, for those of you that have lived around one of those, is when the siren goes off, you can hear this thing for a couple of miles away. And actually, one of my good friends lived right next door to this volunteer fire department. And when it would go off, it was really, really loud. Well, I had some friends that were part of the volunteer fire department, and they would be ready. And at a moment's notice, as soon as they would hear that, that siren go off, they would race to their car and they would race to the fire station and be ready for the call. Well, one Easter morning, this was when I was in college and I was home on break, in our house that we... Um, my brother woke up. He lived on the upstairs. He was the only bedroom upstairs. And he woke up on Easter morning, and there was like six inches of smoke along the whole top of the ceiling. And he came downstairs this Easter morning, and he wakes up my dad, and I overheard it, and said, Dad, there's a layer of smoke several inches thick on the ceiling in my bedroom. And of course, my dad jumped out of bed, and he went over to the and he, we were trying to figure out where is this smoke coming from and he put his hand on the door heading out to the garage and the door was warm and he said don't open the door and you know we instantly had to call the fire department well in being ready for every good work it turned out that one of the people the first guy that showed up uh, the first fireman had grown up in that house and so when he heard the very siren to come and you know and they tell him where the house is, he drove straight to our house rather than to the fire department. And when he got there, he knew the entire layout of that house because he had lived there and he knew exactly what to do. He knew to get the one garage to get the car out and not to enter from the house, but to enter from the other garage side. And sure enough, when they actually did enter and actually opened a door, a fire did start in that garage and they were right there to put it out because they were ready for every good work. Well, we are to be ready for every good work ourselves in that type of, of thinking. And so how do we begin to think differently and to be ready for every good work? Well, we know a stimulus check is coming for most of us. And if we're to be devoted to good works and thinking, and how can I be a blessing to others? We know that this thing is coming. And we know that a lot of people are going to be in need. And so if it's better to give than to receive, I want to encourage you to think about how can you help others with this stimulus check if you yourself don't need it. If you have work and God is supplying your needs, this is a time to help cases of urgent need. Think about this. The missionaries that we support, if our church giving has already gone down about a third, 
you can imagine that the giving to all the missionaries that we support that are part of our church, if you just think in your head, most of them are probably losing about a third of their support at this season. Now, hopefully they'll catch back up, but that's a, that's a hit they're going to take. So when you think about the Hudson's and the Zells and Sarah Locus, think, first of all, they're probably going to take a hit of about a third. So the world says, what is mine? I'll keep it. Lust says, what's yours is mine. I'll take it. But love says, what's mine is yours. I'll share it. And so this is a great opportunity to be ready for every good work because the check is coming. Most of us are getting at least $1,200, some of us $2,400, and then those that have many children, you get $500 per child. So you've got some monies coming, and if you have work, be a blessing to others. When you think about what doing good looked like in the Old Testament or being devoted to good works, do you know what it looked like? Let me just read you a couple reminders. Leviticus 19 says that you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I'm the Lord your God. Basically, don't take all of it for yourself. Leave some for the poor and the sojourner. Leviticus 23, 22. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your right field up to its edge, nor shall, you, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I'm the Lord your God. And then in Deuteronomy 15, it says, If among you one of your brothers should become poor, if in any of your towns within your land the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient to his need, whatever it may be. And then he goes on and says, You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all that you undertake. And then he says, For... There will never cease to be poor in the land, which Jesus says. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and the poor in your land. So, once again, Edwards, opening our, our, mouth, our hand wide, he says, merely to give something's not sufficient. It answers not the rule, nor comes up to the holy command of God, but he must open, we must open our hand wide. What we give considering our neighbor's wants and our abilities should be such as may be called a liberal gift. You remember in Ezekiel 16, 49, the sin of Sodom was that she and her sisters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. And that's why Proverbs just reminds us, do not withhold good. From those to whom it is due, when it is in your power to give it. Don't say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow, I'll give it, when you, when you have it with you. And I would say for us at this time in particular, we should err on the side of generosity, knowing that by nature we're greedy, and we should err on the side of expediency, knowing that we are by nature procrastinators. So how can we be ready for every good work? Well, we're told here as well that we're to be careful to, to devote themselves or to be careful to devote themselves to good works. There are five trustworthy statements that Paul gives in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. This is the last of the five. So the first one is, you're familiar with, here's a trustworthy saying, 
deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. That's the first one. Well, the last trustworthy statement's right here in 3.8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want to insist on these things so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Well, just to think about this term here, careful to devote themselves to the good works. Well, to be careful, the word actually is the word for for being anxious or, or even worrying, to give thought, to consider, to reflect, to have a care. The excellent wife in Proverbs 31, if you clicked on this word and looked at the Septuagint, it says she's not concerned, she's not anxious about winter because her children have warm clothes because she made them. She wasn't anxious, she wasn't worried, she wasn't obsessing she, or devoted or concentrating. Her mind wasn't there. And for us, it's easy for us to be anxious or obsessing about worries rather than our devotion and what we're to be obsessing or thinking about is actually on good works. We were made for good works. We were saved for good works. We're to walk in the good works that he's created for us to walk in them. Luther used to say, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. When we had the snowmageddon some years ago, Uh, it was pretty easy to see kind of what the good works were because we were all in four feet of snow. And if you were to try to think of me careful and think through and be worried about who needs help, well, you would look around and you would see some people that had four feet of snow and they're elderly. They're going to need some help digging them out. And so neighbors would come out and we would dig people out. It was easy to see in Snowmageddon what the good works were that we were to do. Well, in this situation here, it's a little different, isn't it? We are going to have to give thought to and prayer to, to think about what are the good works, but there's going to be a lot of digging out that's going to be like the four feet of Snowmageddon, and it might be a lot different digging out, digging out of needs. And we'll get into that a little more as we go. Um, About a year ago, I had the privilege to kind of see somebody do something really wonderful in our church. And it's one of those things we I don't really talk about because the person who did it didn't want to be known for what they did. But somebody, it was a friend of a friend from our church that needed a car. And her situation was such that somebody had taken advantage of her and left her in a position where she was really stuck and needed help. And so this younger couple in the church prayed about it and said, we want to buy a car for this person. And so I had the privilege to go to the used car dealership and we worked and picked out a car. And I was able to tell a couple of the people there that they're buying a car for this person here. And, you know, they're part of our church and this wasn't just like a two or three thousand dollar car, okay? This was north of five k. And when the people heard this in the dealership, you know what the first thing they said both times that I said this to? Wow, that's incredible. Tell me about your church. Tell me about your church. They were so impressed. They wanted to hear more about your church. And it was one of those God moments. It was awesome. We were actually able to share the gospel with the lady that was selling the car. One of the people who was with us, her story was similar. And I said, why don't you tell her your testimony? 
She told her testimony. We were able to share the gospel. All because somebody was doing this good deed that was really amazing of a good work. Well, we are to be devoted to and careful to uh, do these good works. Well, this word, the, the sermon title is actually, you know, being devoted. And it's interesting. The word devoted here in the original language is probably a bad translation. The word is actually this Greek word, pro istemi, pro meaning first, and istemi means stand. So it literally means stand first. Stand first with your good works. Stand first. Be a leader. Have authority. Manage. Care for. And it's the word that we use in Romans where the noun, it says, the one who leads, let him lead with zeal. Or the word that's used when we talk about a ruling elder in the church, they're one who leads well or is a manager. Uh, same word. And so the idea here is that we're to be leaders in good works. If you think back to September 11th, 2012, in Benghazi, what made the Benghazi story so shocking is that no troops were sent in to help U.S. Ambassador Chris Stevens. The frontline warriors that were trained to fight, lived to fight, ready to do every good work, were told by their superiors to stand down, stand down. How sad was that? Well, the message from Paul to the church and the message to us today is to stand first. Stand first. Not stand down, stand first. Learn to devote ourselves to good works. Why? So as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful or useless is Titus 3.14. So this imperative were to learn we are to literally attend a rabbinic school, be discipled by. Jesus said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. There's our homework. Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. We are to learn to lead. Learn to stand first so that we're not barren, unfruitful, or useless. And I think we can learn a big lesson when we talk about going and learning that we can learn from the early church. Rodney Stark has written this interesting book called The Rise of Christianity. He's a sociologist at the University of Washington. I have no idea whether he's a believer. I don't think that he is. But he writes some amazing things about the church in the early church. He says this, The great epidemic of the second century, which is sometimes referred to as the Plague of Galen, first struck the army of Varus during its campaigns in the east in 165 and from there spread across the empire. The mortality was so high in many cities that Marcus Aurelius, who himself succumbed to this very plague, died in 180. But Marcus Aurelius said he spoke of caravans of carts and wagons hauling the dead from cities, that so many people died from the cities and villages in Italy and the provinces were abandoned and just fell into ruin. And that even the people that were at war, the Germanic warriors, men and women, were found dead on the field without any wounds, having died from the epidemic. So it was a big problem, and yet right in the midst of that, look what the church did. The church grew. He says, uh, but for the, for the Christians... Their faith seemed to have answers. 
Another advantage Christians enjoyed over pagans, Rodney Stark says, was that the teaching of their faith made life meaningful even amid sudden and surprising death. Even a shattered remnant of survivors who had somehow made it through war or pestilence or both could find warm, immediate, and healing consolation the vision of a heavenly existence for those missing relatives and friends. Christianity was, therefore, a system of thought and feeling thoroughly adapted to a times of trouble in which hardship, disease, and violent death commonly prevailed. To assess these differences... This is Rodney Stark speaking. He says, To assess the differences between pagans and Christians, let us imagine ourselves in their places, faced with one of these terrible epidemics. Here we are in a city stinking of death, he says. All around us, our family and friends are dropping. We can never be sure if and when we will fall sick too. In the midst of such appalling circumstances, humans are driven to ask, Why? Why is this happening? Why them and not me? Will we all die? Why does the world exist anyway? What is going to happen next? What can we do? This is Rodney Stark talking, okay? Sociologist, secular university, and and this is what he's saying. If we are pagans, we probably already know that our priests, our pagan priests, profess ignorance. They don't know why the gods have sent misery, or if in fact the gods are involved or even care. Worse yet, many of our pagan priests, priests have fled the city as have the highest civil authorities and the wealthiest families, which adds to the disorder and suffering. Suppose that instead of being pagans, we're philosophers. Even if we reject the gods and profess one or another school of Greek philosophy, we still have no answers. Natural law is no help in saying why suffering abounds, at least not if we seek to find meaning in the reasons. To say that survival is a matter of luck makes the life of the individual seem trivial. Cicero expressed the incapacity of classical as well as modern humanism to provide meaning when he explained that it depends on fortune or conditions, whether we experience prosperity or adversity. But you see, the Christians had answers. And so at the height of the second great epidemic, around 260, in his Easter letter, Dionysius wrote a lengthy tribute to the heroic nursing efforts of local Christians, many of whom lost their lives while caring for others. And this is what he wrote. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounding love, unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, adding to their every need and ministering to them in Christ and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors, cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner, a number of presbyters, deacons, and laymen winning high commendations so that death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith, seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. Now, I'm not telling us that we should go throw caution to the wind. They didn't understand germs back then like we do. And so there's, there is some ideas here, or wisdom of applying wisdom. But the point is, is that when everybody left, they stayed. And so even Julian, who was a pagan emperor, wrote a letter to the, to the pagan priest of Galatia in 362, and he said that the, the pagans needed to equal the virtue of Christians. And this is what he said. He said, 
I think that when the poor happen to be neglected and overlooked by the priest, the pagan priest, the impious Galileans, that was his uh, hatred for the Christians, these impious Galileans observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. Benevolence towards strangers and care for the graves of the dead. He said, these impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. He was exposed and recognized the Christians were doing what nobody else was. So what can we do this morning? We think about what can we do to, to meet cases of urgent need of things that are indispensable? Well, let me get you to think about this. How can you be on point for your neighborhood? How can you assess the needs of your own neighborhood? By praying for your neighbors, perhaps setting up a network of cell numbers with your neighbors so that you're all on a, on a group uh, cell list so that as needs arise in your neighborhoods that you can be checking on each other, checking on older people, seeing if, hey, can I go to the grocery store? I'm going to the grocery store. Can I get something for you? Does somebody need their lawn mowed? Does somebody need their gutters cleaned? Does somebody need their oil changed? We already talked about the stimulus monies that you can help. Does somebody need transportation or errands run or meals or computer help or technological help is a huge help of helping people get on board with, with Zoom and Google Hangout. And, you know, people have really helped me get on board with that uh, in a short amount of time. So how can we help each other? Giving blood, helping distribute food, donating food. Uh, we're donating our deacons offering next month to Gaithersburg Help. Uh, how can we support local businesses at this time? This past week, I just texted my neighbors, uh, and this was long before thinking about how could I use this as a, you know, a sermon illustration or something, but I, I just told them, how are you doing and are you still working? And then I'm praying for you today for God's protection and God's provision for you and your family. And I think that, and they really appreciated that. And I would just say to you, how can you reach out to your neighbors and let, let them know you're praying for God's protection, provision for them, and, and then genuinely do that. John Calvin said, there's nothing in which men resemble God more truly than in doing good to others. So we need eyes that look for needs ears that pick up on clues, mouths that ask questions, fingers to type emails and text to follow up, and then hands and feet to help with assistance. And so the book of Titus here is all about being devoted to good works. Well, we're all devoted to something. Everybody is devoted to something, whether it's sports, whether it's your hobbies, whether it's your job. And what Titus is being drilled into him from Paul is be devoted to good works as we represent Christ when we do that. Let's pray together. Father, you have made us our uh, brother's keeper. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us, Lord, to do unto others as you have uh, done for us. Help us to live out the golden rule. Pray that you would open wide our hands and our hearts to show mercy uh, to others. Lord, we think of uh, the parable where I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. And so, Lord, we pray that Lord, we would be your hands and feet 
and that we'd represent you well at this time. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.